Well, now turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14, found on page 923 of your few Bibles, Acts chapter 14. We'll be looking today at the first seven verses of this new chapter of Acts, and so please give your undivided attention to the inerrant, inspired Word of God. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Let's pray for God's blessing. Almighty God, we come to an infallible and inerrant word to be heard through a fallible, errant servant. Yet nevertheless, it is not only the word of God which is preached, but it is the eternal, indeed the incarnated word of God, who also preaches uh, through appointed ministers, so that even though uh, there is a sinful servant, a weak servant who comes, yet the master still uses that one to speak to his people. And we pray, O oh Lord, therefore, that your people, who are your servants, would hear the voice of the master today. And hearing his voice, have the life that comes from him. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I have preached through the book of Acts, you may have noticed that one theme I've come back to again and again is that the gospel, the gospel brings people together. The gospel unites, and we have seen this in a unique way early on in the book of Acts, right? Uh, remember in Acts chapter 2, we see really, I think I would call it, certainly not me, Many commentators regard this as something of the reversal of Babel. Remember at Babel, the world and all of its rebellion tried to build a tower up to the heavens for their own name and glory. God came and down and frustrated and divided them in their rebellion. But now, in Jesus Christ, in the fullness of his work and the outpouring of his spirit, those who had languages through which they could not understand one another, they are speaking and, they are, uh, and those languages are understood. There's a unity that comes through the gospel. Babel is reversed. But the unity that comes through the gospel is not automatic. Unless there is a special operation of the Spirit of God to make effectual 
that gospel, that good news to the hearts of those who hear it. It will not bring about peace. It will not bring about unity and healing in humanity. It will divide. It will divide those who hear and believe, who have been raised up from death to life, who now enjoy communion with the living and true, the triune God. It will divide those from those who reject that message and do not have these things. Luke himself records the words of Jesus concerning such a division in his first account in the Gospel of Luke. We read this in chapter 12, beginning in verse 51 of the Gospel of Luke. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, Three against two and two against three, they will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Indeed, deep factions, deep divisions, we could say, caused by the gospel. Now, last week, we began to see something of this division. We saw it in a unique, redemptive, historical way, didn't we? Because we saw that, um, on the one hand, there was this reaction of those who are filled with jealousy. And those are the Jews. On the other hand, we saw that there were those who were filled with joy, a, a response Very opposite, because the Spirit of God is working within them to make that good news effectual. They are not filled with uh, jealousy, but rather filled with joy. But the division, though that is an important redemptive historical one to mark, is not just as simple as the Jews reject and the Gentiles receive. This week, our text shows us that the basic division exists between those who receive the gospel with faith and those who reject the gospel in unbelief. I mean, there, there can't be a, a simpler sermon than that, but I really do believe that that outlines the sermon text. We see in verse 1 that uh, Luke calls out those who believe, the many among the Jews and the Gentiles who believe the preaching of the gospel, but immediately in verse 2, what does he speak of? He doesn't speak of belief. He speaks of unbelief and its fruits. And so we'll consider the division that the gospel brings to those who receive the gospel with faith, and those who reject the gospel in unbelief. Well, first of all, let us consider what we see in verse 1, those who receive the gospel with faith. Straight away, Luke tells us that they came to Iconium, and like before, which is their pattern, they enter into the synagogue, and uh, Luke tells us, spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. They spoke in such a way. Now, Of course, Luke is not telling us that the outcome of of things, the belief that happened, was a result of the manner or the mode or the way in which they spoke. Uh, Paul, in the book of Corinthians, for example, rejects um, flashy rhetorical ways of speaking as if the power to persuade and engender faith rests on that. And in fact, we already saw last week, uh, chapter 13, verse 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And so the many who we are hearing about today, believing, though it is said they spoke in such a way, it it, it wasn't their speaking that caused the belief. 
Nevertheless, the manner of their speaking certainly matched the content of their speaking. Namely, uh, the manner of speaking ought to come in a way appropriate to the context, uh, the, the content. The manner of proclaiming the good news ought not to be with uh, frivolity, uh, uh, joking that is, that is, you know, wrapping, that is just uh, characterizing the whole discussion of the gospel. The gospel is a weighty matter. And so the manner of speaking was accompanied with a specific message. And unlike the previous chapter, in chapter 13, we were given that rather long account of Paul's sermon, and we were given the very words of that sermon. But here, we're not given the words, are we? And yet, we are given a summary. In verse 3, we see that Luke refers to the message as the word of God's grace. The word of God's grace. Now, I want you to think long and hard about that description. The gospel as the word of God's grace. That's how the gospel message is here described. That's the summary. And let that be a reminder to all who would set forth the gospel, those like myself, as, those, as well as those like you who might uh, maybe even leave this church one day and go seek another place uh, to be fed, that you ought to be looking for somewhere where the word of God's grace is preached. Now, the good news, being a word of God's grace, what does that presuppose? What is grace? What does grace presuppose? Well, let me answer that question by asking another question. If you are an employee, and a number of you are employees here, and you finish your, your time of working, Time's, time comes, the, the pay period comes to an end, and your employer comes to you and says, I'd like to do you a really big favor. I'm, going, uh, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Instead, I'm going to give you a paycheck. <laughs> now, what would you say? I think there's a sense in which you would be incensed by that. If you were faithfully doing your duty to that employer, I think you would be incensed by that remark. Your payment is not a matter of a special favor being done to you. It's what you've earned. It is what is owed to you. But of course, that is precisely what the gospel is not. The gospel is not that. The gospel is the word of God's grace. The gospel does not announce that we receive from God that which we are owed by God, that which we deserve. Nor does it tell us that we simply receive, sometimes people describe the gospel as God's unmerited favor, as if, well, you didn't merit this, but here it is anyways. No, the gospel is not that. The gospel announces that we get the opposite of what we deserve. Not unmerited favor, but as some have put it, demerited. You merited the opposite, and God gives you precisely what you do not deserve. You see, when we speak about the word of God's grace, what does that presuppose? It presupposes that we have offended God. We have done something which offends him. It presupposes that we are sinners, that we have broken God's law and deserve his just justice and his wrath. And instead of coming to us and announcing condemnation, 
and judgment. The word of God's grace. The word of God's grace is that condemnation and that judgment has been visited on the one who did not deserve it. It has been visited on the one who voluntarily, not by compulsion, voluntarily stood in the place of condemned sinners so that all who look to him might be saved. And through the announcement of that good news, which we ought to understand, which we should be able to summarize, to understand as the word of God's grace and by the um, powerful operation of the spirit of God, which makes the proclamation of such good news, the proclamation of the word of grace effectual. By that, sinners are brought to faith. Are you such a one as that? Are you one who knows the declaration of the gospel to you as the word of God's grace to you? A word of grace to one who did not deserve grace. If the announcement of the good news to you that your sins are forgiven you and that you now have eternal life, even now, communion with the living and true God, if that produces in you anything other than unadulterated joy, and wonder, then perhaps you do not know the gospel of God's grace as you ought. I would remind you of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day. Salvation. Today's sermon, I really hope this, is not a lecture. It is an announcement of good news. Receive it in faith. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Know him as he desires through the announcement of the gospel, which is a word, the word of God's grace. But know this if you have received the gospel in faith, That puts an impassable division between you and those who reject the gospel in unbelief. And so I'd like to move on to that and see what that's all about, because that's really what Paul, or excuse me, rather what Luke develops here in the rest of the passage. There's a division between those who reject the gospel in unbelief and those who receive it in faith. Now, the important thing to note about the unbelief that we begin to see in verse 2 Uh, is that it is not an an ambivalent unbelief. When the gospel comes and is met with unbelief, it is not an unbelief which stands passively against it. It is an unbelief which is militantly, militantly, actively opposed to the gospel. And we begin to see that in verse 2, don't we? But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Here, there are unbelievers stirring up other unbelievers uh, further in their unbelief. And while the announcement of the gospel, as I have said, divides those who receive it in faith from those who reject it in unbelief, it actually does unify those who reject it. Oddly enough, they come together in all of their own division to stand united in one thing. Jews and Gentiles 
uh, were not people in the first century who stood arm in arm together. They were never united. But here, with all of their differences, they unite together to stand against those who trust in the Lord. Note the language. One group, these unbelieving Jews, poison the minds, literally embittered the minds of another unbelieving group, the Gentiles, against those who are brothers and sisters in the Lord. You see, those in this world who reject the gospel, as I said before, do not reject it casually, do not reject it ambivalently, as if it really, uh, the gospel, you know, it doesn't matter, take it or leave it. They reject it with a deep hatred precisely because the gospel is the word of God's grace. That produces a deep animosity in those who hear that word and reject it. Without grace, the world stands condemned. The world stands under the judgment of God. There is no hope for those who will not acknowledge that there is one way to God, and that is through grace, the grace found in Jesus Christ, to be apart from that grace and to stand in one's own efforts is to be condemned, and there is no passive reaction to that. Rather, there is this hatred, one which expresses itself in trying to poison the minds of as many as it can against those who herald the good news of the gospel. Today, is there a poisoning of the minds by an unbelieving world against those who may hear the gospel and believe? Is that going on today? Well, of course it is. It's happening here in this text, and it continues today. Uh, it's amazing how people with very, very disparate beliefs, so dis many disparate beliefs, can come together in one unified thought. Those who follow Jesus Christ as Lord have lost their minds. <laughs> they are the crazy ones. Again, it's not something new. We see it here in Acts chapter 14. And if you were a Christian in the early church, you knew this kind of um, propaganda warfare that was going on. Did you know that um, in the early church, the, the news circulated about Christians were this. Uh, number one, they're cannibals, right? Because they come together and they eat flesh and they drink blood, the Lord's Supper. Uh, they're atheists. That was widespread as well because, well, they reject the Roman gods. And, of course, they're unpatriotic for the same reason, particularly because the emperor was thought to be a deity and, you know, they're rejecting him as well. And such mind poisoning, uh, that, those efforts continue today. It is said that Christians are the most hateful people in the world. You know, they don't believe in things like evolution, so... They hate and reject science. They're patriarchal tyrants. They're racists and so forth and so on. Well, there are a few things we can say to that. First of all, may those slurs not be true of us. <laughs> may it not be true that we are hateful and tyrannical and so forth and so on. Christianity does not teach that. Indeed, may the deeds which attend our words disprove those charges. Note verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, 
Reformed people are very quick to say, well, these, these signs and wonders, these miraculous things, they were needed at this time because a new word of revelation is coming along concerning Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. And there needed to be miraculous signs to validate that. But those signs are not needed beyond the foundation level of the church. And that, of course, is correct. But it is not true that the Lord ceases to cause uh, the gospel to be validated, to be confirmed through activities produced in the lives of believers, namely good deeds, good works. There is a principle of discontinuity, for sure, miraculous signs are not done. But there is a principle of continuity here as well. For example, we read this in Matthew 5.16. Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What will invalidate the, the continuing, if I, if I can put it this way, mind-poisoning efforts of this world? Such things. Or this from John 13. Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Indeed, Christian, as I have said, the response of unbelief to the gospel it is not a neutral one. Far, far from it. Let us not despair. Let us not be over, you know, wringing our hands. I don't just sit around and decry the world as a, as a mind-poisoning entity. Rather, we realize that that's the only thing the world can do. <laughs> the world is lost. The world is dead and it sins. What can you do? You can serve the Lord despite these things. To combat that, let your light shine before men. Be regularly engaged in loving and in serving your neighbor. Let your good deeds adorn your gospel profession. Moreover, realize that the attempts of those to poison the minds of unbelievers, those attempts are really extended to you as well. Young person, you particularly need to remember that. The entertainment that is being produced, it's not neutral. The education you receive, if, if, especially if it's, a, if it's not in a Christian school, it's certainly not neutral. Indeed, everything in life is designed, which everything which communicates is designed to communicate a message. Therefore, you must be vigilant. You must be constantly engaged yourself in, in what I would refer to, or really what the Bible refers to as mind renewal. The world seeks to poison minds. What is the remedy to that? Well, in seeking to uh, disconfirm the, that efforts regarding others, a good profession of faith adorning, adorned with, uh, uh, with good works. But in our own life, we must guard our hearts and minds. There must be mind renewal that takes place. Indeed, I spoke to a brother even this week, and even meeting with someone this week and talking about the Christian life is about mind renewal, seeing that those things that we are to, to, to come to believe to reckon that the things spoken of us in the gospel, that we have died to sin, that we have raised, been raised with Christ, 
Reckon those things to be true, as Paul says in Romans 12, too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is that thing that renews your mind? I spoke about mind renewal. What renews your mind? It's not, uh, you know, supplements. <laughs> You know, I think that that you can get, you know, the right oils and that will maybe help your brain function a little better. That's not what I'm talking about. The thing which will enable you to discern the perfect, the good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. It is the word of God. It is the word of God's grace. It is that which we have been hearing about. Earlier, I focused on the gospel, uh, which is described as the word of God's grace, as that which initiates the Christian life. But later on in the book of Acts, Paul speaks of the word of God's grace in a different way. The last words that Paul has to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 read this way. And now I commend you to God, and notice this phrase, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What is able to build you up and to lead you to that inheritance which you have in Christ, in your sanctification? Paul says, it is the word of God's grace, the word of God's grace, inscripturated, read, and certainly preached. In all circumstances, especially as you live in a world which is hostile to you, which would seek to undermine your thinking about God and yourself and others, You need that mind renewal. You need the word of God's grace, which is able to build you up, to give you your inheritance, to sanctify you. Know well that far from neutral, as I've said, the the responses of the world to the gospel, they are far from neutral. They will not stop simply in efforts to to try and produce a kind of propaganda. We see in verses 5 and 6, they move further. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. If you want to belong to Jesus Christ and confess him as your Lord, you will be mistreated. They seek to stone Barnabas and Paul. And later in this very chapter, we'll see that they do in fact succeed in stoning Paul. Do not be surprised by the hostility that will come your way if you seek to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Prepare for it. But let me note this about this passage. Do not seek it. (laughs) Don't seek it. You see, in this case, uh, what did they do when they learned about this plan, this plot to mistreat them? They left. You must always be willing to bear the cross of Jesus Christ. But if you can avoid persecution without compromising your faith, make sure that you do that. Well, as we close, we've seen that the announcement of the gospel, far from producing rainbows and butterflies and just peace and unity and harmony, there's actually a division that comes about through the proclamation of the gospel. It divides between those who receive it in faith and those who reject it in unbelief, and those who reject it, reject it actively, 
fully, fully with all of their might, opposing those who would believe, seeking to dissuade, to poison the mind, and even to persecute. The Lord Jesus could come back today, this afternoon, before the evening service. May you be found in faith whenever he should come back. May you be found loving him. May you be found loving others and putting to lie the idea that you are a hateful, vengeful, destructive person. May you have the kind of faith which confirms the word of God's grace. Let's pray.